Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Welcome to Brave Little State, BPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy, and this month on the show, we're doing things a little differently. Instead of taking on one of your questions about Vermont, we're taking on three in a kind of local history lightning round. We've got a question about those crooked windows you see on Vermont farmhouses, a question about Vermont's defunct gold mines, and one about the history of Burlington's Church Street. Brave Little State has support from the VPR Journalism Fund. Welcome. So let's just get right to it with our first question. Hi, Brave Little State. My name's Aaron Troncoso from Burlington, and my question is, what's the history of Vermont's witch windows, and why do they only exist in Vermont? My colleague Amy Noyes has this answer to Aaron's question. You might have seen this architectural oddity on an old Vermont farmhouse, even if you didn't know what to call it. It's one of those upstairs windows that's set on a diagonal. It's the crooked window tucked up under the eaves in the gable end, so the triangular part of the roof, and it's just tucked in there at a crazy angle. This is Devin Coleman. He's the state architectural historian at Vermont's Division for Historic Preservation, and he says there's superstitious lore behind the name Witch Window. The story is that a witch on a broomstick can't fly through a crooked window opening, which I guess, you know, physically is true, but it's the only crooked window in the whole house, and if I were a witch, I would just use one of the other vertical windows. (laughs) Then there's another theory that doesn't quite add up. You'll also hear them referred to as coffin windows. The idea being that it's difficult to maneuver a coffin with a body uh, from the second floor down to the first floor on these narrow staircases, so slide it out through the window and down the roof, which does not seem any easier. And if you think about it, you wouldn't carry a coffin upstairs to put a body in it. You would bring the body downstairs and put it in the coffin on the first floor. So (laughs) I don't think that holds a lot of (laughs) truth there. I'm not totally convinced that that was the actual origin of the window. Maybe another convenient use of the window once it was developed. Britta Tan is an architectural historian in the Burlington area. And indeed, Devin Coleman says the real origin of the witch window is probably much less interesting. My 
interpretation as an architectural historian is that it's simply a really practical New England response to the need to get daylight and fresh air into a second story room. I think they're just a really great piece of vernacular Vermont architecture that really kind of points to how unique Vermont is and how resourceful farmers were. You'll often see a witch window above a one-story addition to an old farmhouse. And typically, if you're adding on a wing to a house, you're covering up windows. So you'll have an extra window sitting around, and why not just angle it and tuck it in that little section of wall space, and you're done. In a word? Frugality. As to why the windows are only found in Vermont, well, they aren't. It's not specific to Vermont. I think it's more prevalent, but you you do find them in rural areas in New Hampshire and Maine and other parts of New England. In other places, they're simply referred to as crooked or angled windows. That being said, both Devin Coleman and Britta Ton agree that the highest concentration of witch windows is in 19th century farmhouses in north-central Vermont. And Coleman says we might be the only ones to call them witch windows and tell those stories associated with the name. It seems like the witch window in that explanation might be unique to Vermont because none of my colleagues in other states had ever heard that and thought it was an interesting theory. Around here, they're also called Vermont windows and lazy windows. And of course, there's endless fun to be had with the question of which witch. Get ready for an architectural history joke. Someone, a tourist, will be driving by and ask a local, hey, why does that window look so funny in that house? And the local will say, which window? And the tourist says, okay, great, thanks. And they drive off. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that one. That answer was brought to you by Amy Noyce. Next up, question number two, which came to us from Peter Brown in Vernon. Peter says he's heard that Vermont used to have two gold mines. And what he wanted to know was, is this true? And if so, where were the mines and when were they used? My colleague Kathleen Masterson did some digging, pun obviously intended, and here's what she found. Did Vermont have two gold mines? The short answer is yes. In fact, for a brief time, there were many more than two mines in Vermont. On this map, you see all the, all these kind of gold thick lines. And those are all the streams where they found gold. This is Marjorie Gale, Vermont state geologist. She's showing me a map from 1861. It's like a treasure hunter's dream. It marks out what seems like a river of gold following the spine of the Green Mountains, with a few areas of higher concentration in the Plymouth Bridgewater area, east of Killington Mountain. And is this trustworthy? I mean, are they, are they, would there be false gold or are all these, do you think all oh, these reports are accurate? I think they're probably all accurate. It's, it's never, it hasn't been an economically or commercially viable operation, but certainly people go out and find flakes of gold. And those flakes of gold inspired a flurry of mining activity in Vermont back in the 1850s. It all really began with the uh, 1849 gold rush in California. That's amateur historian Coleman Hoyt. Hoyt has been fascinated by Vermont's gold history for decades. And for the last 80 years, since he was 11, he's lived in North Bridgewater on the optimistically named Gold Coast Road, so called for its proximity to the old mines in the area. Hoyt says the allure of the California gold rush drove many Vermonters west, though very few made much money. 
But he says the story goes that two of those men returned to Vermont. And realized that the topography of our part of Vermont was quite similar to Sutter's Mills in California. Sutter's Mills was a hotspot for gold in the Sierra Nevada. And Hoyt says the men would go fishing near Killington. And by gosh, they found little sparkling nuggets in our brooks in Bridgewater and Plymouth. And that started the, the gold rush here. And to this day, you can still walk through the forest and poke around the remnants of the old mines. Uh, we're at uh, Camp Plymouth State Park, and we're going to set up the old Jeep trail that leads to the, uh, the Henry Fox mine along Buffalo Brook. Nelson Alinsky is a gold-panning hobbyist, and he's a self-taught Vermont gold historian. By studying old photos and maps, he's found the foundation of some mine buildings and the underground tunnels. And you won't believe it, but welcome to the Fox Mine. Whoa, we're in it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people literally walk by this area. He pulls out an old photo. It shows how there used to be several brick buildings alongside the river. A mill for crushing quartz chunks, housing for the workers, and the office of the assayer, who was like a prospector. This was the assayer's office. So we're in what's left of what, would you say, like three, four feet tall? Yeah. Yeah. Basement? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, we've done the foundation for that. Then there's the remnants of the mine shaft itself. Yeah, here's the other. Oh, other yeah. rail. Yeah. Uh-huh. He taps the twisted iron railroad tie, the only remnants of the tracks that went into the now-collapsed horizontal mine shaft. The rails supported horse-drawn carts, which ferried piles of ore out of the underground mine. Um, it actually travels for 300 yards up the mountain to where the, uh, the vertical shafts are. And it, was it big enough that the cart went in the mountain? Yeah, totally went in. Wow. Yeah, yeah you can see this is, this is all that broken up schist material that they were working. Yeah. Even more astounding is the vertical mine shaft that they were able to connect to this tunnel. We huff and puff up the steep hillside, and then suddenly, with no warning, whoa, in the middle of the nondescript forest floor is a gaping 20-foot-wide hole that prospectors carved by dynamite blasting. Holy cow! Yeah, this is uh, what everybody calls the 45-degree uh, shaft. Connects to the other two, but... Whoa. Yeah. I mean, it looks kind of sparkly. Am I just getting the gold fever? I think you're getting gold fever. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, this is a huge hole in the earth. <laughs> yeah, and again, so just dynamite and chisels? Yeah. Wow. Because yeah. this one's at least 20 feet wide. Yeah. And then who knows how big the actual yeah, A lot of sweat are. and a lot of backache. <laughs> Alinsky is talking about all the manpower that went into building this mine. Because after some prospectors found gold flakes, there was a mini-boom in gold mining activity in the Plymouth area, according to local historical societies. Coleman Hoyt says a small but vibrant community grew up around the men who came to work the gold mines. Called Plymouth Five Corners, the town had a hotel, a school, and a dance hall. Photos from the Plymouth Historical Society show women in floor-length dresses and hats sitting in the shade while watching men digging in the riverbank, scooping silt and gravel into a sluice to wash and separate, looking for gold. Oh, in Bridgewater, there were over 100 people working in gold mines. That's more people than worked on farms. It was the major occupation in Bridgewater and in Plymouth. Locals say that today, Plymouth Five Corners is a virtual ghost town. The only remnants are the numerous cellar holes where homes used to stand. By some accounts, Vermont had 40 to 50 mines in its heyday. But to be clear, a mine could refer to anything from dynamite-blasted piles of quartz to an actual mine shaft dug into the earth. 
And no matter how you count the number of mines, the question of whether prospectors made any money from Vermont gold is not under debate. State geologist Marjorie Gale says all her predecessors have been skeptical of the practice. She quotes one of them from 1930. Again, let me say that in my opinion, it is entirely useless to throw away money, time, and labor seeking gold in Vermont. (laughs) And that's 1930. That's also in 1928 and 1929. Over and over, they just say stop. You're not, you shouldn't be investing in it. You know, you might find some, but you're never going to get rich. Basically, both geologists and eventually prospectors determined that while there is gold in Vermont, there aren't deposits large enough to make enough money to pay for all the digging and crushing and sluicing. Still, Coleman Hoyt points out that a few people did make money off Vermont gold. There are two ways you can make money out of gold mining in Vermont. The first, he says, is to do what he did for a hobby, to give tours of old gold mines. And the other way, of course, is to uh, sell stock in a gold mine. And this happened in the 1880s. There still exists a 46-page typed stock prospectus selling shares in the Rooks Mining Company, though later state reports suggest it was nothing more than a get-rich scheme. Still, while the industry may have been but a flash in the pan, so to speak, the legacy of Vermont's gold mining continues to this day with skilled hobbyists like Nelson Alinsky still working the rivers and teaching others how to pan for gold. Back in Plymouth State Park, about a mile downstream from the old Rooks mine, Alinsky breaks out his shovel and gold pan. He picks a river bend where the water would have likely deposited some of the heavy metal and starts digging. Okay, so we're down to like a quarter cup of soil, yeah. silt. Yeah, and that's, a, that's actually a piece of a garnet right there. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then, without any fanfare, he struck gold. Uh, you can barely see him. Just one tiny little... You'd think he'd be hooping and hollering, but he was calm. I was pretty excited, but tried to keep my cool. Oh, man. And we'll see if we can get it down it's a like little a bit. a pencil point of gold. Yeah, I like little pieces like that. Um... Because it means it's not far from the source. Um, you see how it sticks to the bottom of the pan? Yeah. It's right there. Wow. Should okay. There's a couple. Look. Yeah. The tiny specks are barely visible to me, but Ilinsky assures me it's gold. He can tell by the glint and by how heavy the material is. He demonstrates by shaking the pan. Watch it. See it? Right there? Yeah. No, it's everything else around it. So it moves. And the gold And, and the, gold, the gold glues itself to the bottom of the pan. That's how you know it's gold. And uh, believe it or not, 10 of those make a dollar. (laughs) So it takes a lot of gold. (laughs) Still, Alinsky and his wife spend many summer weekends panning for gold. And he teaches a gold panning class for any would-be enthusiasts. He's mastered the art of reading a river and finding those milky quartz veins that may contain gold. Alinsky says Yankees are tight-lipped about how much gold they've collected, but he gathers about an ounce a year. And it's as close to pure as you'll find, 23.5 carats. But Alinsky says he wouldn't sell it. For him, it's just about the hunt, and spending time outdoors with family, and teaching others about Vermont's gold history. Kathleen Masterson. Our last question comes from Lorraine Carter Lovejoy of Burlington. Who or what was Church Street named after? I ask this question 
because it comes up frequently that Vermont is very secular. And my friend suggested that Church Street was named after person with the last name of church instead of the Unitarian Universalist Church at the top of Church Street. My colleague Liam Elder Connors fielded this one. It might sound like a trick question. Who do you think Church Street or what is Church Street named after? I would assume it's named after, isn't there a church at the end of the street? The one that you're pointing at right now? Yeah. So it's just that church up there, so it's was named Church Street because of that. My guess would have to be the Unitarian Church at the head of Church Street. Um, I think it's named after the church at the top of Church Street. I would have to agree. <laughs> that church up there. The church at the end of the walkway. I have zero idea. I'm really? assuming a church. Most people guess that the name came from the Unitarian Church that's at the top of the street. Though I was surprised to hear Winston Churchill tossed out as a joking guess not once, but twice. I don't, I don't even know if he's from around here. Winston Churchill. The, uh, why don't you know what president he was either, right? He was a president, right? He's a British prime minister. British prime, prime minister? I always thought he was the president. That's funny. But like most people guess, Church Street is indeed named after the Unitarian Church. And the street's been identified by the church for a long time. Church is built in 1816. As far back as the uh, land records in the 1830s, and an early one I read in 1830, it's referred to as the road leading to the brick church. That's Mary O'Neill, a principal planner with the city of Burlington. She also helped write the application for Church Street to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. O'Neill says that Church Street served a really important purpose. It connected the Wharf District on Burlington's waterfront and the Mill District in Winooski. It's just in between those, what's going on in Winooski and what's going on in the wharves. And since Church Street was a connector street, lots of people traveled on it, which of course meant it was a good place to set up stores. It's interesting that the construction of the church may have defined this street as being the mercantile district. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward answer, and probably not that surprising. But what you might not know is there used to be a giant ravine in Burlington. It cut diagonally from Upper Pearl Street down to the old barge canal in the south end. And a river did run through it. There was running water in it, and it was deep. And Church Street was away around the ravine. And there was not easy transit between the east and the west of Burlington. In fact, you had to come down Church Street. This was the path. And if you're wondering what happened to that big ravine, it got filled in during the 1870s. In the newspapers in the 18, I think it was 1877, the city invites residents to come dispose of their broken pottery, their yard waste, and their dead cats by helping us fill the ravine and throw, throw your material in this chasm to help us fill it and make a bridge. Now, as someone who owns a cat, that bit about throwing dead cats in there breaks my heart a little bit. <laughs> I'm sorry to, to report that, but it was in the Burlington paper. But of all the people who visit Church Street every year, how many of them have popped their head into the building that it's named for? I asked Bob Fur, the facilities manager, to show me around the 201-year-old church. In the sanctuary, which feels kind of like an old New England meeting house, Bob points out eight banners that largely sum up what the Unitarian Church is all about. Diversity, inclusion, and tolerance. The first one to the left is the UU banner, Unitarian Universalist banner. Second one is the Islamic crescent moon and star. Third is the Buddhist wheel of Dharma, the Hindu Shiva. On this side, we have the Jewish menorah, the Taos yin yang, the Christian Celtic cross, and lastly, the Native American tree of life. 
What I really wanted to see was the bell tower. It's so iconic and nearly impossible not to notice if you're in downtown Burlington. Plus, every hour the bell actually rings. But what's the city look like from the top? Do you need to take that with you? If you do, that's fine. So Bob took me and my microphone up to the bell tower. You're just going to need both hands when you're climbing, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm... All right. We climbed up a steep set of stairs, then up a steep ladder to arrive at the clock platform. And this is where the inner workings of the clock were, a beautiful and precise assembly of gears quietly ticking away. Bob says he has to come up here and manually wind the clock each week. And it's a real aerobic exercise. I can imagine. Yeah. 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 How long does it take for you to wind it? Probably close to 60 seconds, I would say. Yeah, let's head on up. When you get up where I am, on your left, you'll see a black steel bar. That's a good thing to grab a hold of and um, boost yourself up with, okay? Sounds like a plan. All right, not so bad. Yeah. Wonderful. When I got to the top, I could see Church Street, stretching out in front of the church many feet below. And it was pretty neat to be looking down at an area that I know so well and notice new things, like the Golden Dome on top of City Hall. Great view from up here. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Adirondacks to our west. Mount Philo straight ahead. And I saw people walking. A couple of them seemed to be looking up at the bell tower. And I know this is kind of cheesy, but I felt like after seeing the church sitting on top of the street for years, it felt kind of special to flip that equation and see the street from the church's view. That was Chittenden County native, Liam Elder Connors. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. We've got pictures of the view that Liam got from the top of the UU church, and also pictures of gold mines and witch windows at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from VPR members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Editing this month by Lynn McRae and me. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by David Saitste, Poddington Bear, Jockers Dance Orchestra, and Avon Comedy 4. We have engineering support from Chris Albertine. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month. And until then, remember, be brave ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.